Good afternoon. It's Friday the 16th of October 2020, just after one o'clock. I'm your host, Mike Robinson for UK Call News. Do apologise, fluffed my lines there, Patrick. Uh, Patrick Henningsen joining me today and also messed up the lower third. So we're doing well already. But look, we're going to get straight on here because, uh, well, lots going on. And uh, well, it's all going to end in tears, Patrick. Yes, indeed. Uh, and tears... Tears of a certain type. Well, tears of a clown. In fact, three of them on screen at the moment. Sadiq Khan, uh, Boris Johnson, and Matt Hancock. And uh, it's all about tears, we're told, Mike. What is? Can you help us uh, navigate through this? Well, yes, of course. I mean, because we started off uh, a number of months ago, if you remember, with the five-level DEFCON system. We were going to be running from DEFCON 1 to DEFCON 5, with uh, one being uh, no transmission of the virus and five being in infection spreading at dangerous rate. And uh, the most recent announcement on this particular uh, form of status uh, was that we were on three, we'd moved from four to three. Well, they didn't tell us that we moved back to four as such, uh, but that's basically what's happened. But they then decided that this was too complicated and we needed to simplify it. So we've gone from five levels of DEF CON uh, to three, and here it is. Uh, we now have medium, high, and very high, levels one, two, and three, and we're not really sure whether we're supposed to be in level two or level three, because of course this is all about local lockdowns now. How come there's not a low? Uh, there well, should be low level, right? No, 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 because apparently we're not ever gonna get back to low level. We're only gonna be medium, high, and very high. So uh, Corona is confused uh, about all this um, and confused about which uh, levels various parts of the country are in. Now, of course, the announcement this morning is, or the agreement this morning is, we'll come be talking a little bit more about this uh, a little later, is that Lancashire, uh, has agreed now to move into tier three, which is the strongest level of local lockdown there is. Pubs closed, not people not allowed to associate with each other and so on. Um, and, uh, and this was on the basis, Patrick, of them getting more money. Well, it's all about money. It's isn't it? all about money. That's what it is. It might be a bit about a bit more than that. Uh, of course, lots of uh, stuff in the press about the the, the fake rebellion uh, from the north. Uh, Andy Burnham, in particular, saying that he is not going to accept Boris Johnson's attempts to move Greater Manchester into level three. Uh, ministers backing off from after following apparently backing off following Burnham's uh, uh, demands. But of course, this is all fake, isn't it? Well, it's a, it's a WWF show or WWE show, fake wrestling. Uh, so really, they end up arguing, Mike, about what, you know, should we lock down this much or should we lock down a bit less? And then the press love this type of argument because uh, you, you get sucked into the minutia of whatever the bureaucratic decree is coming from uh, central government. And without anyone asking the question, should we be locking down in the first place? And that's not even on the table in terms of this discussion. So they've masterfully uh, created another cul-de-sac, uh, which they're very comfortable operating. Uh, and as you rightly point out, of course, there is no low level here. It's medium, high, and very high. Uh, and as you say, the, the mainstream press has put people into this cul-de-sac very cleverly, and it's taken the no lockdown option off the table completely. So they're, they're basically saying that COVID's permanent uh, and, and these lockdowns are going to be permanent, this alert system, this tier system, it's, it's here forever, and there's no possibility that there could ever be a low level or a non-crisis level. I can't believe people aren't calling them out on this. This is the most amazing, egregious uh, propaganda move yet. Yeah. And it, they're not being called out on it by the mainstream press, really. I find this unbelievable. Uh, so, look, what's, uh, what's the situation with... Uh, biosecurity. Well, just just for a little more, uh, if people want a little more depth on this, uh, we've done an analytical piece here, which I've written for 21st Century Wire, and really looking at the Joint Biosecurity Center. They're the ones uh, who apparently are informing the science advisors, who are then making the decisions or their recommendations to mayors, to regional governance, uh, whether to uh, lock down or not or wh whether it's going to be a tier one, a tier two, or a tier three situation. And GCHQ, uh, the, uh, one of the cybersecurity directors, Dr. Claire Gardner, we look at her, she's apparently a qualified epidemiologist, a medical researcher, and cybersecurity director, but this merging of the intelligence services with the cabinet office, in a way, with the government, with creating a new layer of uh, national security state uh, bureaucracy, basically. So this, like we saw in the aftermath of 9-11, 
We had a Department of Homeland Security in America, for instance, uh, and all of these different security state layers that came on top, and all the gravy trains that kind of go with it and feed off of it. Now you have the biosecurity departments, and in the UK, the Joint Biosecurity Center. So this is identical to the process that took place post 9-11. Only now, instead of Islamic terror or Islamist uh, global war on terror, now it's the war on the virus, for instance. But it's hard to determine whether they're declaring war on the virus or they're actually declaring war on the population. Uh, I think it's the latter, and, and you're absolutely right. All roads lead back to the cabinet office. Uh, the the uh, Joint Biosecurity Center falls under the auspices of uh, National Security Agency and, and obviously the National Security Advisor who is in the Cabinet Office as well. So but it's very opaque, and this is what we pointed out uh, in this article here, opaque and unaccountable, the dangers of the new COVID biosecurity complex. Yes. So that is the main point, is we don't know a lot about who's sitting on all of these departments and who's working in these departments and so forth. A lot of it has got a sort of layer of opacity over it. Uh, now, uh, we were just talking about Andy Burnham in particular and the, well, the BBC News article here is COVID, Andy Burnham holding the government over a barrel, says Rob, uh, with this fake, uh, this fake rebellion from the North. Uh, and I say it's a fake rebellion for a reason. We'll come on to that in a second. Uh, but Andy Burnham making all kinds of threats. But who is Andy Burnham? Well, we know that he's former Labour Party uh, MP. He became the, the mayor of Greater Manchester. Um, but he's not just the mayor of Greater Manchester uh, because he is also the UK's representative on this body, uh, Metropolis. Um, and, uh, well, Metropolis is apparently are for and by their citizens where, uh, where participatory and effective metropolitan governance fosters economic development, sustainability, social cohesion, gender equality and quality of life. Uh, and the key word in that, aside from all the, the, the sort of... Uh, typical buzzwords of the day like sustainability and social cohesion and gender equality. The key word there, word there is participatory uh, because as we've been highlighting for a long time, Patrick, uh, the form of democracy that's being built around the city state in the UK and globally in fact, as represented by this organization, uh, is is one of a form of participatory democracy. You know, most people think when they hear the term participatory democracy, they think that we get to, the individuals get to participate in the democratic process. Therefore, it's a good thing. And therefore, it's a good thing. But the form of participatory democracy that's being pushed by this crowd is, is one in which only certain vested interests, the experts, Mm. get to participate and the stakeholders and the stakeholders yeah. but the rest don't mm. and this is extremely dangerous it's to coin a phrase it's an illusion of democracy it, it, it is you know wrapped in all of these sort of uh, cushy global globalist language it is now if you if, if you go and look at uh, metropolis.org which is the uh, website for this organization uh, you can see there there's first-hand experiences to rethink our cities following the pandemic this is all about change and change agents and make, and using the pandemic to drive this change. Um, and they say, uh, we are the global network of major cities and metropolitan areas. We serve as the hub and platform for metro, uh, metropolises uh, in, uh, sorry, to connect, share experiences and mobilize on a wide range of local and global issues in addition to being the focal point of worldwide experience and expertise on metropolitan governance. So uh, one of the reasons that uh, these uh, northern uh, cities and, and uh, unitary authorities are pushing for, for more money is because they have a very clear idea of where they want to go in terms of their governance. And it's not as part of the nation of the UK. They want extra money to continue to push for this. So if they're required to impose uh, government sanctioned lockdowns and so on, well, they want the money to do it their way and to implement, implement the policies that come through this type of organization. And put this metropolis slide back up on screen for a minute. Look at this, look at how it's designed, look at how the language is formed. This is basically a subset of the Great Reset, which is coming out of the World Economic Forum. That's how you should look at this sort of thing. It's the localized sort of franchise of uh, World Economic Forum initiatives of, of the Great Reset. Yes. And this is now out of the cat's out of the bag already on, on the Great Reset. Boris Johnson's let the cat out of the bag, so have other uh, world leaders, uh, that this is what the actual agenda is. And yes, it's come out of Davos. 
in Switzerland. Yes. Uh, now, if you want a little bit of extra background, uh, have a look at Martin Edwards' article. Now, this was originally published in 2016, but it absolutely still applies because Andy Burnham is also on the Global Parliament of Mayors. So the headline on the UK Column website, you'll find it towards the bottom of the front page, is the Global Parliament Parliament of Mayors and the Abolition of the Electorate. I recommend everybody reads that and tries to understand it because it's a key uh, point of understanding where we're going in terms of our governance, where our relationship is going to be between us as individuals and the state. Um, and uh, the key term there is abolition of the electorate. Absolutely. So this is a new um, uh, skin, if you will, uh, that's going to be laid over the top of what we initially have. So this is moving things, nudging things uh, more towards a global government. And then uh, all this, the power is going to be devolved into cities into global cities and global city-states because this is where the urban uh, populations are, this is where the numbers are, this is where you get your mandate and really just eschewing and ignoring and marginalizing everything that's outside of that politically, culturally and so forth. Yes. So. Yes, right. Now, uh, it's not all bad news because, uh, well, here's the Daily Mail and for once they have seem to have published an article which is a little bit honest about, uh, a little bit more honest about what's going on. Uh, so the headline here is truth about the claims scaring us all to death, soaring infections, taming hospital wards and terrified, terrifying death rates. But do the numbers justify crippling new lockdowns really stand up to scrutiny? And, you know, when the mainstream press does something useful, then we should uh, highlight it and, and say, well done, I suppose. But let's have a look at what they have to say here. Uh, first of all, uh, on paper, the 95% statistic revealed earlier this week by Liverpool City Councillor Paul Brandt conjures up a disturbing image of overflowing hospitals and inadequate care. So rest assured it bears no relation to reality. Indeed, on Thursday, Liverpool University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust dismissed Mr Brandt's claim, insisting that its units were only 80% full with just 47 of its 61 critical care beds occupied. That may still seem high, but it's actually perfectly normal for ICU beds to be full at this time of year. And this is a very key point, Patrick, because from the beginning of this, from when we started uh, commenting and, and reporting on COVID from March onwards, uh, one of the things that we have been trying to get across to people is that the mainstream press is in general repping, representing normality as something which is abnormal. So we've got normal levels of hospitalizations, we've got normal levels of deaths, and they're being represented as ab something abnormal. Now, what then consequently happened in April as we went through this was that we started to see abnormal levels of deaths once the lockdown started to have its effect. Um, and, and one of the key things that resulted as, as came about as a result of the lockdown, of course, was the NHS uh, reorient itself totally towards COVID-19 to the detriment of everything else. They effectively switched off every other NHS service to, to a large degree. Uh, people weren't getting the support they need and that naturally resulted in deaths. Uh, and then we had the issue of uh, the removal of uh, medical support from care homes, which also resulted in deaths. So there was abnormal death in April and May, but as we've said many times, that was or we're calling it lockdown death. Um, now, what's going to happen this winter? Uh, this is a very interesting question because, of course, the NHS, the, the narrative that's attempting to be built at the moment is that the NHS is going to maintain all the services that they switched off in April and May over this winter period. And that puts even more pressure on the NHS than was potentially there in April and May. And therefore, we've got to do much more to protect the NHS this winter than we did in April and May. And that's one of the things which is driving this justification for lockdown. And worse, Mike, that you could see an absolute repeat of the killing fields in the care homes. And as, as bad as that scandal was, and, and as easy it is to figure out what went wrong, the same conditions are being put into place that you could have a repeat of that uh, this winter as well. And of course, they would blame that on, on COVID, mm. when in fact you have uh, uh, you know, the use of injections and things like this. Basically, when you withdraw care, and then it just becomes a numbers game mm. uh, with regards to care homes, and then people end up, you know, being put on the death pathway, uh, for instance. And if they happen to be PCR positive for COVID or coronavirus, then they'll get counted as a COVID death. I mean, the, this wholesale fraud 
uh, right across the board. And so, you know, what we have is the, the politicians and we have the media that are wringing their hands, hoping for a spike in deaths, that they can rally around the deathometer and then celebrate that, ah, here's our second wave is finally here. It's almost like they're just, you know, desperate, desperate to have the second wave. I mean, this is a really sick it's, it is, mindset yes. that the, the mainstream media and some people, I'm sorry to say, in the, uh, in the academic and medical professions as well who are on the side of this, people who are on the side of the pharmaceutical agenda and politicians, mm -hmm. gagging for a second wave, gagging for deaths. And they might say, no, we're doing this to save lives. But, but it, they know that if they can get their numbers or create their numbers, it will justify all of the policies that they've taken, all the failed policies that they've taken since last March. Yes. So let's work our way through this then. Uh, the Daily Mail mentions the claim, which is that COVID-19 death rate is actually high. Uh, and the reality is it really isn't. Um, and uh, so they say such fears date all the way back to March when the World Health Organization uh, morosely announced at a press conference that the virus had a mortality rate of 3.2%. Uh, and they go on to make the point that it really isn't anywhere even close to that. Uh, then one of the next claims that they debunk here is a second spike could cause twice as many deaths. Uh, and the reality is far fewer people are dying now. Um, so they're saying the disturbing claim dates back to the report from July by the Academy of Medical Scientists, a commission by chief scientific, sorry, commissioned by chief scientific advisor, Sir Patrick Valance. So we've got a problem right there. Uh, and then it goes on to say, which estimated that there would be 119,000 deaths if a second spike coincided with the peak of winter flu. And of course, this was followed up, uh, Patrick, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when the Chuckle Brothers, uh, Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty, give a press conference where they effectively produced their own version of the global warming hockey stick graph mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and showed that uh, the levels of deaths were going to go exponential within 30 seconds. Now, of course, it's not happening. And the BBC's explanation for it not happening is that, uh, well, you know, deaths follow infections and it's going to be a few weeks before we start seeing the deaths, but of course, exactly what, what I was saying. The media saying, "Just wait, it's coming." Yeah, it's the coming. The deaths are coming. Yes. Just wait, two weeks, and, two and more of, weeks. And of course, the deaths are coming because they come every winter. It happens every single year. And the question is, the question we've got to be really careful about is, is there anything abnormal going on, or is this normal mortality being dressed up by the mainstream media to be something abnormal? And this we, we've got to be really careful about. So let's move on to the next claim here from the mail. Uh, that the, the mail's highlighting, that the current wave of infection will tear through the elderly. Uh, and uh, the reality, we're far better prepared for this this time around. Now, this one, I'm not entirely sure that the mail is correct about, because if you've, as you've already mentioned, there are signs that the care home industry is going to fall into exactly the same traps that it fell into in April. So I'm not entirely sure that the mail is correct on this one. I don't think we are better prepared this time around, some people might be. Some people might be wise to what happened, some but it's not be. generally yeah. uh, understood. We should be better prepared. I think this is what the mail's trying to say. Or the knowledge, the knowledge is here that wasn't there uh, last winter, theoretically. Anyway. Yes, yes. And then the next one, uh, the next claim, uh, there's no such thing as immunity. Is the next claim they want to look at, uh, but they say that the uh, chances of reinfection are low. Uh, and they're saying here that earlier this week, it was revealed that a 25-year-old man in the U.S. caught COVID for the second time, leading the University of Nevada's Dr. Mark Pandori to warn that there could be a significant implications of our understanding of COVID immunity. Now, of course, they're dying for this to happen because the idea that there's no potential for immunity against COVID uh, justifies the continuing lockdowns. It justifies the uh, the potential use of health passports because unless unless there's a danger of reinfection then they can't really justify the the cost and the inconvenience of health passports and immunity passports and of course the chances of reinfection it has to be uh, reinfecting us otherwise they can't justify uh, the mass vaccination of everybody so um, it's very important that they start building a narrative of reinfection and again we've got to be very careful about whether it is actually reinfection or something being dressed up as that. It's a coronavirus, clearly, and we've been living and existing with coronaviruses for many thousands, I don't know, tens of thousands, maybe millions of years. So there's nothing new in terms of a human's relationship uh, with these sort of um, viruses. We've, we've always lived with them. But what they're trying to do, Mike, is elevate 
this so-called so novel coronavirus or COVID-19 into kind of rock star status, like it is just greater and more powerful uh, than all of the other sort of seasonal respiratory viruses, and we must worship the power uh, of the uh, coroni. And that's one of the main dogmatic tenets of the Branch Covidian Church, the new, the new cult, the Covidianity. Mm. Uh, you, must, you must defer and recognize the power of COVID. And we need to do all of these things because we need to protect people against COVID. So they're really inflating it well above its station uh, epidemiologically. Mm. So, you know. Yeah, okay, well, let's move on to the next one. We will never get to herd immunity is the claim that they were looking at this time. And the reality that they describe is we shouldn't rule it out. And of course, any look at uh, Sweden at the moment demonstrates that we shouldn't look it out. Now, the naysayers about Sweden say that, well, Sweden had uh, pretty much the same kind of levels of deaths that the UK did. Sweden absolutely acknowledges that they made the same uh, mistake with respect to care homes that the UK did, if you want to call it a mistake. They followed the same policy with respect to care homes, and that resulted in deaths in care homes. But the fact is that no week goes past at the moment, Patrick, without another video coming out showing the normality of life in Sweden at the moment, people not wearing masks, people not in lockdown, people using public transport, using bars, using restaurants, getting on with their lives in a way pretty much the same that they did uh, prior to, uh, to uh, the whole thing starting. Now, some people argue that, well, Sweden's much more of a surveillance society. In fact, people in Sweden are already getting microchipped and this kind of thing. But you can't, over it's very important not to overstate this. The total number of people carrying microchips in their arms in Sweden at the moment is 5,000. I can't remember off the top of my head what the total population of Sweden is, but that's a very small proportion. And it's a corporate, it's, it depends what company they're worth. There's certain corporations yes. that are rolling that out, right? So it's not a national no. policy. No, no, so. it's, it's something that's been sold, sold to teenagers a little bit to make it more convenient to pay for stuff, but it's not something which is general across the population at but, all. But the main point, the main point is that there's no general threat to the Swedish population. It's not a national emergency for everybody because it's proven that this seasonal respiratory virus, this coronavirus doesn't really pose a threat to the vast majority of the general population. It poses a threat to a specific uh, demographic, a specific group of people. And so this is why uh, the Great Barrington Declaration uh, that was put together by uh, some, led by some of the Brit uh, top British scientists as well, and US scientists have said just this, Mike, is that we need to focus on where the problem is and, and everyone else doesn't need to be on lockdown. We need to get back to life as usual, allow herd immunity to happen. Um, and so, so a lot of people have signed on this and they've come under attack. Matt Hancock himself attacked it on the floor of the commons uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, so there's, there's definitely a, a concerted effort to discredit this uh, common sense approach. This is natural immunity they're, they're representing the kind of natural herd immunity approach. And now the science is being uh, attacked, basically, and they're trying to create a new science or a new uh, consensus. And so lo and behold, Mike, um, the reaction, the counter reaction to the Great Barrington Declaration is here. And it's called the John Snow Memorandum. So using the name of the uh, historic uh, British physician, I believe, who discovered cholera or discovered you know, how to defeat cholera. Now, I, I'm going to say here, Patrick, that that, that is why they've chosen it. One reason why they've chosen the name, I'm going to suggest that another reason they've chosen the name is because it sounds very similar to a popular television character from Game of Thrones and that that will naturally trend on Twitter because even today there's still a lot of twi Twitter traffic which is related to Game of Thrones and this will get... Uh, it'll get spread around Twitter a lot broader as a result of that uh, similar name. It also helps to, to bring up its reputation as a kind of moral and ethical sort of guiding light here. So this is the UK establishment's anti-Great Barrington campaign. Mm -hmm. This is the only way you can look at it. It's come out, it's been signed by apparently more than 2,000 scientists, researchers, and healthcare professionals who've signed this new memorandum, the John Snow Memorandum, which is basically saying that there, you know, there is no natural herd immunity. This is what they're claiming here. And they're getting traction. I mean, here is the, the paper here, Mike. Uh, this was in the Lancet. 
uh, just a couple of days ago. The scientific consensus on COVID-19 pandemic, we need to act now. So this is the Jon Snow memorandum, effectively. And they have a link within the Lancet article where you can go and sign the Jon Snow uh, me memorandum. So they're, they're using the Lancet to launder, basically to launder the reputation of this, which is looks to me, Mike, very political. How do I know it's political? Well, look at the key word. You, whenever you see this, you know that it's political. Yeah, consensus. So the scientific consensus. So there, the real science, there is no consensus. This looks so familiar, Mike. Where have we seen this before? Climate, climate change. change. Global warming, climate change. So so now we know that the, the game is up, okay? Cards are on the table. Uh, this is political, 100%, because you can't have a consensus in science. That's anti-science to say that there's a consensus. Science is an ongoing process, and it is a, it's ongoing by the thousands and thousands of scientists and doing research and uh, to, to discover things and, and totally moving the dial mm. all the time on, on any of these issues. So let's look at one of the lead authors on this, uh, Mike. And here she is here on Twitter. She's doing the rounds on the BBC at the moment. Her name is Dr. Nis Nisreen Alwan. And this is what she says. She says, I am talking about the fallacy, the fallacy of herd immunity by natural infection on BBC World Service here. Hashtag Jon Snow memo. And so the, the fallacy of herd immunity. So uh, who is, is she the Galileo Mike of epidemiology? I mean, it's, all of a sudden, there's no such thing as herd immunity. We woke up on Monday, and all, according to all these great uh, establishment-oriented scientists, um, there is no more herd immunity. So this is the battle, Mike, between uh, synthetic immunity and natural adaptive immunity. So the pharmaceutical industry, the government, uh, the uh, John Snow Memorandum, they maintain that the only path to herd immunity is via synthetic pharmaceutical intervention, i.e. vaccines. And of course, this is what the pharmaceutical industry and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, maintain, and this is why they are invested to the tune of tens of billions of dollars to find a vaccine. So it is synthetic immunity versus natural immunity. That is the paradigm. That is the, the, the battle uh, right now. So it is really corporate versus science. Uh, that's how I, I would frame this. That's how I would look at it. Uh, absolutely. Now, uh, at the beginning of that, you said that Matt Hancock in Parliament had uh, attacked the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, well, he said that herd immunity is a flawed goal without a vaccine, uh, even if we could get it, uh, which we can't. So he's made a statement in the House of Parliament that we can't get herd immunity. That's definitive. It wasn't an opinion, it was in Parliament. Was he misleading Parliament there? What qualifies uh, him to say that other than he's been told that by who, Valance or Witte? Um, so he's repeating something which he doesn't know for certain is actually true. He's been given the crib notes from uh, this, the SAGE team or somebody within SAGE or who knows, the cabinet office, and he's gone and repeated those? That's right. So, uh, the so he then went on and he said that a number of infectious diseases such as measles had never reached herd immunity. And well, unfortunately for him, Harvard University's Dr. Uh, Martin Kuldorf and Stanford's Dr. Day, uh, sorry, Jay, Jay, Jay Bhattacharya, Bhattacharya yeah, uh, have said, well, in fact, Actually, measles, okay, there is a vaccine, but actually before the vaccine was ever there, it wasn't normal that everybody got measles. There was already a level of herd immunity there. So, so uh, the, you know, the experts have once again uh, dismissed Matt Hancock as not being or as being less than honest about uh, the reality there. But anyway, let's, let's move on back to this Daily Mail article because the next claim, uh, only a circuit breaker will stop the virus. Uh, and uh, well, there's uh, the the reality is it will only delay the inevitable. Now, of course, the government claims that uh, that that's all they're aiming to do is to delay delay the inevitable until such times as a vaccine is available. But it's still going to be another year before a vaccine's uh, available. And in fact, a circuit breaker uh, would stop the virus or delay the inevitable for at most 28 days, according to most uh, sensible or 
uh, honest <laughs> scientists. So uh, doctors and epidemiologists, so 28 days isn't exactly delaying the inevitable. It is inevitable in any case. So it, you know, this indicates once again that it's the wrong strategy. I mean, how, how ridiculous of a situation are we where uh, you have politicians and their advisors coming up with these abstract concepts like circuit breaker uh, and trying to basically shove that into real science claiming that uh, you know this is the solution, the circuit breaker. That's what they're saying this week, Mike. What's, what's it gonna be next week? Is it gonna be something else? It's gonna be like they'll have a new term and a new strategy, and they'll just keep trying, because what they're doing, Mike, is they're trying to, they're hoping, they're hoping that science will eventually conform to their ideology, which is a technocracy, yeah. basically. If they just keep trying, oh, this technique's not working, don't worry, we're gonna try something different next month to stop the to stop the oh, there's my yeah. thumb it's super glued to my knuckle to stop the virus stop the virus eventually this virus is going to get it's going to learn to conform to our uh, uh, technocracy yes event science will conform eventually Th what does this remind you of the Soviet Union this is what happened in the Soviet Union this is what led to the great famine uh, during the Stalin's times they had these crackpot science advisors and a corrupt uh, regime, a Politburo, mm. and it led to death and destruction uh, of historic proportions. It, it, there's no question this is what we're looking at right now. Okay, and then let's look at the last uh, one that we're gonna look at from this article. There are more, so go and have a look at it for yourselves. It's worth the effort. Uh, infections are running higher now than when Britain went into lockdown in March. And the reality, according to this Mill article, is there's an increase in cases, but only because we're in uh, testing more. And I think this, this is absolutely a key point here, Patrick. We've been banging this drum for quite some time. A test, a positive test result is, does not make a case. Uh, and uh, a number of points about the positive test results, of course, PCR tests, uh, the number of cycles that the, 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 uh, the sample is processed through affects the accuracy of the result. Uh, PCR, you're not supposed to put it through if you want an accurate result any more than 30 cycles. Uh, we're on often, if not always, putting it through more than 40 cycles, sometimes 45, 45 to yeah. 50 cycles. Um, and so uh, what you're getting is vast numbers of false positives. Some people saying 80, 90% of the positive results are fa false positive results. So a case, a, a, a positive result is not a case and we've got to get away from this language. Of it's not even cases. an infection. Yes. It's not even an infection as well. So it's not a case, it's not an infection. But what the media aren't saying, and to the last point on the Daily Mail, Mike, is that uh, when people come right now, when they're coming into hospital for whatever reason, they're being tested yes. right now for COVID. That wasn't necessarily happening. They didn't have that much testing going on even back in March. So there's going to be more, quote, cases mm. uh, by nature of the fact that everyone who's stepping foot in any of these healthcare facilities is gonna get tested. So that's ramping the numbers up. But even still, Mike, even by ramping all of those tests up, the casualties are not there. They, they could Because you can't conjure those up as easily out of thin air. Uh, this is true. Now, uh, I just want to highlight one comment from, the, uh, from a reader of the Daily Mail article here, which says, excellent analysis, but unfortunately this is now a political game with Johnson trying to get to a position where he tells us he has saved us all from a terrible disaster, the facts don't enter much into his workings. And I think that's absolutely correct. Joe Stalin. Yes. Joe Stalin. Now, uh, another uh, article from the Mail, because uh, this uh, is something I just wanted to get your comments on here, Patrick, because uh, around the same time that that article was being published, here's another one back on the COVID frontline. Intensive care units are seen packed with patients struggling to breathe as wards fill up and tired doctors worry they face crisis all over again for an indefinite period of time. I'm not going to bother going into this, uh, the content of this article, but what this demonstrates is the absolutely schizophrenic nature of the Daily Mail at the moment, Patrick, uh, with, uh, you know, some, a small number of voices, uh, Peter Hitchens being a notable example of it, uh, offering, injecting some sanity and reality into the Mail articles, but 80, 90% of what they publish just this kind of uh, fear-mongering rhetoric uh, to the delight of the government? Well, it's a big organization to, to take the Daily Mail, for instance, this big media organization. And uh, they, you know, they do have kind of separate departments. The Mail on Sunday um, 
you know, being slightly separated from the Daily Mail. But even within the Daily Mail, you have uh, differences of opinions. I'm sure you have different uh, political viewpoints. You have some people that are more conservative and you have other people that are more sort of Trotskyist, more like the sort of Tory, you know, hmm. mad socialist Trotskyist conservative government, okay? And then you have the labor uh, crowd as well. So you have, a, there's a bit, I think there's a, there's a variety of viewpoints uh, within the organization of the mail, and I think they have to make compromises editorially within their organization to, to also to keep their uh, writers and their reporters happy. Mm. Uh, so it is a mixed bag. It might appear to be schizophrenic. No doubt it, it might be schizophrenic, but there's probably a good reason for that, um, is that there is no consensus in, within the Daily Mail. That's, that's my personal Mm. Uh, belief. Take on it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's come back to Matt Hancock then, uh, because of course, uh, a week or two ago, uh, he was in, or a few days ago, he was in uh, the House of Commons, uh, and he made this comment that a trial investigating vitamin D has taken place, uh, but it not did not appear uh, to have any impact on the effects of COVID nineteen. Now, this is uh, quite spectacular, Patrick, uh, because uh, well, Matt Hancock probably has been a member for quite some time, but certainly uh, needs to be added to the new Liars Club. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, Hancock must go, I think we need to be saying here. But uh, the reason that we say that, of course, is because it's now come to light that there was no such trial. He it lied. didn't exist. He lied. He literally made it up. I mean, you, there used to be rules against that, right? Oh, there still are rules against misleading parliament, uh, and it would be very likely that if somebody was, if, if we had a properly functioning democracy, that anybody that uh, told a fib like that in Parliament would uh, certainly not be a, a minister or secretary of state for too much longer. That's clearly not just a mistake, Mike. That's not a typo on Hancock's part. He, that, that is, that is a, uh, someone who's clearly making something up in order to win an argument. Mm -hmm. So that is an absolute lie, a total fabrication on his part. Quite obviously, go back and look at the clip and you'll see. Yeah, now, uh, was it uh, on Wednesday's program we mentioned uh, this, the big vitamin D mistake. This was a, a scientific article uh, talking about uh, Finland and type 1 diabetes and the fact that it uh, had plateaued and then decreased after the decision to fortify dietary milk products with vitamin D3 since 2006. And the point that they were making was that uh, there's the role of vitamin D in, in it and adaptive immunity is critical. Uh, and they were then recommending that the government change the uh, requirements for uh, daily intake of vitamin D uh, for the numbers that are on screen. Uh, we talked about more about this on Wednesday. Um, well, I've been told, and thanks to the person who sent this through to me, uh, that uh, doctors in the UK and the NHS are now getting advice on vitamin D, uh, and they're being sent uh, this little piece of information. Um, they're being asked to test and report blood serum levels of, of uh, vitamin D for all COVID-19 patients. Now, whether they're able to do that, of course, uh, bearing in mind that Roche is not providing blood tests at the moment and the blood tests are being uh, rationed, uh, that's another question. Um, but then they go on to say to add uh, vitamin D3 supplements to all patients' treatment packages. Um, and then they uh, are also uh, giving people uh, in, within the NHS uh, this particular document. Uh, and there's a, a bit.ly link, a bit.ly link at the bottom there, which is uh, vitdcovid19info. Um, and uh, well, that leads you to um, a document, uh, and here it is, COVID-19 and vitamin D information. Now, I'm not gonna, you're not gonna be able to read that on screen. Uh, you don't want you to read it on well, screen. We'll put the link on the uh, uh, description be below on YouTube after the show. Uh, absolutely, it will be there. Um, but the key point that uh, you should note here is that it says this document is for medical uh, professionals only. So it's not intended to be used uh, by lay people or by journalists as such. But on the other hand, uh, what it does is it goes through supporting evidence, graphs, uh, links to scientific papers. It's a really fantastic uh, reference. Uh, it's still available online and uh, anybody that has an interest in vitamin D uh, would be wise to, to, to go and have a look at it. But uh, one of the, the key points that they make in that of course, is that vitamin D isn't just about uh, an immune response and the ability of the, the, the body to produce an immune response. It also has a direct impact um, on, on the, the progression of COVID-19 in a particular way, and you'll see that when you read the document. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're making the point that 
as we've made many times in this program, that the elderly are certainly vitamin D deficient, but actually everybody in the UK in the winter is vitamin D deficient. So it has therapeutic qualities it, and, and benefits yes, as well. Yes, so that's, just, yes. that's another side uh, of it. Particularly we... in, in helping uh, reduce the likelihood because one of the problems that, that people that have had a, a particularly strong adverse reaction to, COVID, to coronavirus, uh, it's this thing called cytokine storm when the immune system uh, basically goes into overdrive and, and kills the patient. Um, and, and this vitamin D has a, a, a particular effect to, to uh, push down on that on that possibility. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, if you like what the column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there and that'd be very much appreciated. Um, and uh, just uh, to let everybody know, David Ellis uh, produced another program yesterday. He was speaking to Admiral Lord West. Uh, he was the former head of the Royal Navy, of course. Uh, he was uh, giving a strategic forecast of what's happening to the Royal Navy while it's waiting for new ships. And of course, uh, he was making the point that, in fact, there's going to be a massive hole, massive gap between ships being retired and new ships coming online. He was calling that a national disgrace. Uh, go have a look at it if, if you would like to. Uh, a reminder of AV 11.1 coming up on uh, the weekend of the 1st of uh, November. Uh, and uh, well, you'll be speaking at that, Patrick. Um, I will. I will be doing uh, the Great Reset. I'll do a talk on the Great Reset. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so uh, details at alternativeview.co.uk, also on the UK column website, uh, tickets available there. Okay, let's uh, get on to this then. The Covert Human Intelligence Sources Criminal Conduct Bill had its third reading uh, yesterday, Patrick. Uh, and uh, well, as you can see, that, that is the front page of the bill itself. Uh, and you'll notice that it talks about the European Convention on Human Rights. We'll explain why that's important in a little bit. I'm just going to give a little bit of a run through once again on this. This is the third time we've covered this, but still quite a number of people uh, saying, have you seen it? Have you, uh, you know, are, are we aware that this has been going on? So uh, clearly a lot of people watching the UK column news, maybe don't watch it every day, uh, haven't seen our coverage of this. So I'm just going to give a brief reminder of it. And it's important that the European Convention on Human Rights is mentioned on the front. But just let's remember what this is about. Uh, it's a bill to make provision for and in connection with the authorization of criminal conduct in the course of or otherwise in connection with the conduct of covert human intelligence sources. So these are agents working for the state. They might be people that are working for the police. Uh, or for the intelligence services within campaign groups, uh, or uh, might be people that are working for HMRC or might so on. Be, might even be informants, you know, perhaps. Uh, I don't know how long this extends, this, this uh, ability. Uh, it extends far and wide, as you'll see in a second, Patrick. Now, the key point here is that up until this point, um, it has always been accepted that in the, in the case of undercover work, uh, that people that are working undercover may end up uh, getting involved in criminal activity because in the course of the undercover work, in order not to blow their cover, the, the cover they've got to take part in it. And also there was a, an understanding that uh, that in the process of taking part in some level of criminal activity, that they may actually end up uh, gaining intelligence, which then prevents a much uh, bigger harm from being done. But, and this was the key point, up until this point, um, there was always the understanding that if you were caught committing a criminal offence uh, and it wasn't justifiable that, that you were given no immunity from prosecution, you could be prosecuted for that, uh, for whatever it was you did. What this bill does is it removes that, that uh, potential prosecutity, uh, prosecution, it gives immunity, uh, but on top of that, it also removes the ability for people that are on the receiving end of the criminal activity to bring any civil cases in to get compensation. So the, the, the example that is cited are the, the women that were uh, drawn into uh, relationships with agents of the state, which were fake relationships, and whereas they didn't view them as fake relationships, they ended up having children in some cases. Um, and, uh, you know, this was viewed as absolutely wrong and rightly so. Um, so. So that's the situation. Now, in the debate for this, uh, if you remember, James Brokenshire was the Home Office Minister who was uh, uh, giving the, the, the presentation, the main presentation in this. Uh, and he was saying, you know, this legislation is being introduced to keep the country safe. 
It's all about safety, Patrick, to ensure that our operational agencies and public authorities have access to the tools and intelligence they need to keep us safe. So safety was the main justification for it. Uh, but we don't need to worry about anything uh, because, uh, you know, historically, we've always done this. Uh, that was his argument. We've always used covert human intelligence. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, sir, from Sir Francis Walsingham right up to the present day, and uh, the last time I was commenting on this, I said, well, you know, that was a, quite an interesting uh, example to give because, of course, one of the points that people are making here is that this bill doesn't put any restrictions on the types of criminal activity uh, that uh, are allowed to be used. And people were asking, for example, would torture be allowed? Uh, of course, Walsingham used torture liberally. So uh, anyway, the, the, the other thing that uh, most people now finally recognise is the range of organisations that can authorise this criminality. So any police force, national crime agency, serious fraud office, any of the intelligence services, any of Her Majesty's armed forces, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, Department of Health and Social Care, the Home Office, Ministry of Justice, Competition and Markets Authority, the Environment Agency, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Food Standards Agency, and the Gambling Commission. I mean, it's just spectacular, the breadth of agencies that are now allowed to authorise criminal activity without any real oversight at all, no judicial oversight. Uh, there's got to be some kind of uh, uh, recourse to the Investigatory Powers Tribunal, but what have they ever done in the past? Really nothing to deal with uh, breaches of the Investigatory Powers Act in the past. So this is the state giving carte blanche to every single agency uh, under its umbrella basically to have at it, basically do what they want with no recourse, no redress of grievances as far as the public are concerned. I mean, this is a full-on, you know, I have to say, it looks like a full-on fascist takeover. I, mean, I think that's a, fair, that's a fair assessment of it. But you don't need to worry, Patrick, because Brokenshire again was saying this, uh, specific reference to the Human Rights Act in the bill, and in fact, on the, on the cover of the bill, uh, he was saying that, uh, you know, don't need to worry because in, in the course of this criminal activity, the Human Rights Act will be right there front and centre and, you know, they will be expected to behave within the limits of the Human Rights Act. But the question is, are we going to have a Human Rights Act? Uh, because as the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission here said, uh, when they were talking about what Brexit means for equality and human rights in the UK, uh, they're making the point that, in fact, after Brexit, uh, we may not have a Human Rights Act anymore because it may be replaced with a British Bill of Rights. And there's still, although this has kind of fallen off the radar at the moment, it's still being pushed forward uh, with, with Geoffrey Cox here, uh, the former Attorney General, saying that he wants to uh, drive forward with the idea of, of a, a Human Rights Bill. Uh, so Human Rights Act may not apply uh, in the not too distant future. And of course, you've got to look at these bills on a long-term long basis. This becomes an act. It's gone through the, uh, the third reading now. So it now goes to the House of Lords um, and, uh, and they get to see if they can make any amendments themselves. The, but the question isn't so much, Mike, about uh, uh, putting, framing it with the Human Rights Act as it is the rule of law. Uh, because it, uh, this is abrogation of the rule of law, basically. There, there are laws against criminal activity uh, by the state against the people. Um, so, you know. Well, that's, that's interesting you say that because here is a, a, a key point. It is to be expected there would not be state responsibility here. That's a removal of the rule of law. And if you do that, then society, uh, historically, history tells us society breaks down very quickly. Uh, without the rule of law. That's one of the fundamental pillars of a society, of a functioning nation, of, of a state. So it's hugely risky uh, to try this uh, power grab. Um, so at the, uh, the, the bill then passed its third reading by 313 votes to 98. Now that was better, uh, a better result than the uh, second reading, but nonetheless, uh, not, not so good. Uh, but the uh, Labour Party, of course, had once again told their members to, or the, the, the MPs to, to abstain from the bill. But some, some member, uh, members of the v Parliamentary Labour Party refused to abstain from the bill. They voted against. Here's Dan Cardin, who I'm going to single out here because he's one that absolutely voted against. And he tweeted out, as a matter of conscience, I, I must vote against 
the Chiz Bill tonight, I've offered my resignation from Labour's front bench. Um, and so some did a take a stand. A, a man of integrity. Yes. Uh, in, in the House of Commons. That's uh, incredible. Dan Cardin, people should you know, encourage him uh, for what he's done. He's taken a stand on principle. That's so rare yes. in politics right now. Um, and uh, if you want a little bit more background for this, then uh, Spectator has a good article here from uh, Matthew Scott. Uh, the terrifying consequences of the license to kill bill, as it's being described. Uh, there were amendments uh, last night uh, really to try to put some limitation on the types of criminality that would be allowed and those were defeated. Um, so the House of Commons has failed here spectacularly. What will the House of Lords do? Well, uh, our understanding is that the House of Lords is largely not functioning at the moment because of coronavirus. They're, not, they're, they're basically not allowed into the House of Lords. Many of the Lords don't have the ability to, to uh, for any kind of remote voting or remote access. Um, and so uh, the House of Lords not really at its full strength. So what are they? Are they going to shove this through Zoom call? A few Zoom calls, Mike. Uh, that's a few, a few Skype calls, and then back to the House again. Uh, basically, to yes. be rubber stamped. Yes, this, that, that's where, where we're where, at. Where's the democracy? Where's the government in this? This isn't normal democracy. This is so an abnormal piece of legislation. You know. <laughs> a real outlier is being put through an abnormal democracy right now under the color of COVID, mm. under the color of COVID. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, uh, many people may have noticed that there's been some stuff during the rounds of uh, social media involving the Oxford vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, and, uh, and this is uh, one example of it, the monkey holding the, uh, uh, the, the vaccine in their hand uh, with AstraZeneca on their white coat. Uh, and uh, well, we see the, the the rise of man or perhaps the fall of man in the background uh, as a result. Uh, Boris gets a bit of treatment here as well. He gets turned into Bigfoot. Uh, I like my Bigfoot vaccine is what is being described. Lost a few pounds as well, so it's quite flattering actually. Yeah, and, uh, and then we've got this uh, people queuing up uh, to building with AstraZeneca on the outside and coming out as gorillas and monkeys. So uh, this has been doing the rounds and it's caused quite a bit of a stir in uh, political circles. Uh, here's Dominic Raab uh, and uh, this is what he said. It's a shabby piece of disinformation but it's very serious because it's an attempt to disrupt the uh, attempts to find a safe vaccine. So this is what he was saying on the Radio 4 Today program this morning uh, and he went on to say, what do you think he said next Patrick? I can't imagine. Uh, he went on to say, we know that Russia has a track record of disinformation as a foreign policy tool. Uh, and well, must, there you go. Must it, be the Russians. It must be the Russians then. Do, the do, Russians do, did do it. Do we know where it actually came from? No. We don't. No. So it's just, we assume... We don't know whether it was 77 Brigade. We don't know whether it was uh, a rapid response unit in the cabinet office, or we don't know whether it was Russia. Um, no idea, but Dominic Rab has decided it was Russia. So a, a, a mem, a mem on social media has the power to derail the UK's multi-billion dollar uh, vaccine project. Well, that, that, they're, they're certainly implying that it has that power, yes. Hugely dangerous, according to Dominic Rabb. A bit of satire. Hugely dangerous. What sort of headspace are these guys in right now? Crazy. It is, yes. Right. Look, let's move on to uh, what's going on in the United States. There seems to be an election going on there, Patrick, at the moment. There is. A lot of people don't realize it, but there is a presidential election uh, going on in the U.S., Mike, uh, and this is the October surprise uh, has hit, actually. Uh, we were wondering what it was going to be, and it, there was hints that something was coming. Well, it looks like it's arrived. This is the first October surprise. There might be more coming after this, according to the source of this story, which was uh, Rudolph Giuliani, the president's attorney who got active and made this story happen. So Biden's secret emails, basically what happened here, uh, so the Ukrainian executives personally thanked Hunter Biden uh, for an opportunity to meet his dad. And so this means that Hunter Biden had been denying and Joe Biden had been denying that there was any knowledge. He didn't know what it was son. I trust my son. I don't know what he gets up to in the Ukraine at Burisma. And uh, he didn't do anything wrong. And I had no idea. And I wasn't involved. Well, it turns out that this proves that uh, Biden, the presidential candidate for the Democrats, actually lied, but it's worse than that. Let's take a look at this. So Hunter Biden introduced his father, then Vice President Joe Biden, to a top executive at the Ukrainian energy firm Burisma. The firm was paying his son at the time 
uh, up to 50,000 per month. Wow. Bear in mind, uh, Hunter Biden has no experience in gas and energy or in the Ukraine. He was just gifted the job and apparently had nothing to do with the fact his father was vice president uh, in the Obama administration and who Joe Biden was in charge of the Ukraine portfolio at the time. Nothing to do with that. It was just a coincidence. My talented son. <laughs> so this story came out just uh, in the last 48 hours, Mike, and look what happened as a result of this. This is what happened. This was the reaction by Silicon Valley. Twitter suspends the account of the New York Post. This is a major newspaper. And so they've, they've published something that's critical of the Democratic nominee, Silicon Valley, Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, big donor, big supporter of the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. And they closed the account of a media outlet. Can you believe this? Let's go on. Facebook throttles it, puts a fact check warning on it. Okay, roadblocks it basically. And check this out, Twitter suspends the account of White House Press Secretary uh, Kaylee McEnany uh, for sharing the story on Twitter, for retweeting or sharing it. She's the White House Press Secretary. So we, we hear all this talk, Mike, about meddling. The Russians meddled in the 2016 election, mm -hmm. uh, the 2018 election. There's no evidence of it at all. And here we see this is direct meddling. In fact, this is worse. This is what the Chinese government do. Anytime some bad information pops up uh, on the Chinese internet, boom, blocked, roadblock, account, account closed, account suspended immediately, like a knee-jerk reaction. This is happening in a so-called democracy in America during an election, right in the last few weeks of the election. A story comes out that, that's uh, embarrassing for one nominee, and they shut it down. Mm. I mean, so there's no difference, really. So it's, it's a, the corporations in Silicon Valley are doing what the Chinese government do and so this is this is one of the roadblocks you get on Twitter. Your tweet could not be sent because this link has been identified by Twitter and our partners as potentially harmful. So a factual story: the Biden campaign have have, have not said that these weren't you know authentic emails. So these emails between the executives and Hunter Biden. So there are questions about you know where this came from, where this, these emails came from. There's a whole very shady story of a laptop being left at a computer repair place in Delaware, mm. and this is how these emails came to light, okay? Mm. So that's another story, but the fact remains, and this is the WikiLeaks argument too from 2016, was they are factual, these are real, mm. and they do prove that the politicians are, were lying uh, when they said otherwise. So let's look uh, a little bit further on this, Mike, and uh, say where this story actually goes. Well. Uh, a year ago, this was during the impeachment hearings, Mike, we published an investigative piece uh, that we, we believe this is what the real scandal is. And so the media are, yes, this is a scandal. Yes, Biden lied, and yes, his, they're corrupt, and his son's basically grifting off the back of the Obama administration, getting rich. But the, the re there's another real story here. Hunting for Hunter, we published this back in November of 2019. Evidence reveals Biden, Burisma, Ukrainian bond scandal. Okay, this is a financial scandal tied to a major U.S. investment firm and a whole network of high rollers in the United States. Mm. So this is the real story. Let's take a, a little closer look here and, and find out what is the story here. What is the real scandal here below the Biden email scandal here? Well, the f so the funds that entered the Burisma's accounts had illegal origins. This is the point that the media are not picking up on, okay? And so, so the funds that entered Burisma's accounts had illegal origins and later, according to the evidence, uh, the Ukrainian prosecution's office here, uh, they were transferred to the accounts of four persons, including Hunter Biden's. So not only was Hunter Biden getting paid uh, in this dodgy job that was gifted to him by his dad, basically, but he is taking money that had illegal origins of being laundered through Burisma, okay? And these are, uh, this is uh, here, the Ukrainian prosecutor, uh, a quote from him. These are all Ukrainian sources, by the way, and we've double-checked them, and they seem to be very accurate, in fact. So and here's the second point. At the time when Burisma, the investigation in Ukraine, was underway, then U.S. Ambassador Maria Yovanovitch had blocked the visas of general prosecuting officers from the Ukraine uh, in order to disrupt their working visits to the U.S. to, to share notes with U.S. Uh, Justice Department and colleagues. So she was a star witness in the impeachment trial. 
a year ago in Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff's impeachment trial. So she was, in fact, involved in covering up the corruption of the Bidens in the Ukraine. And so the whole impeachment fiasco, Mike, was cover, I believe, and many others believe, was covered to, uh, to, to shield and deflect against a bigger scandal below the surface. I'm going to show you how deep this goes, though, because it doesn't stop here. And so he, they say here, we were supposed to share this information during a working trip to the United States, said Kulik, before adding, however, the ambassador Yovanovitch blocked us from obtaining a visa. She didn't explicitly deny our visas, but also she didn't give them to us. Mm -hmm. She was in charge in the Ukraine at the time of the U.S. Embassy. Okay, so you can kind of see how this is going. And so a little bit further here, the, the third point, according to prosecutors, these businessmen had siphoned off uh, embezzled Ukrainian state budget funds with the help of an American financial firm, a firm with connections to high-ranking members of the U.S. Democratic Party establishment. Let's take a look at what that firm is. It's Franklin Templeton Investments, okay? And let's look a little bit closer here. The legalization, the laundering of these funds obtained illicitly via purchases by Franklin Templeton Investments of state bonds totaling something like 7.4 billion, okay? So let's take a little bit closer look here. What is this? This is a financial pyramid scheme, basically, that is being run. Let's take an even closer look. Let's look at the granular view here. Okay, the son of Templeton's founder, John Templeton Jr., was one of the biggest donors of Barack Obama's electoral campaign. And Tom Donilon, the chairman of BlackRock Investment, is also the biggest shareholder in Franklin Templeton. Donald served as a national security advisor to Barack Obama. Look how high this scandal goes. That is a Ponzi scheme being run out of the Ukraine. So this is a bit of the battle of the oligarchs, Mike. There were competing oligarchs. Yanukovych was thrown out, one oligarch replaced by another more pro-US oligarch. But really, there was a whole fraud and Ponzi scheme going on below this. And people in the Democratic Party were basically using the administration's uh, privileges in order to profit off it and also to cover it up. And people, lots of people getting rich within the financial sector by these dodgy, fake Ukrainian bonds. And some of this was being run through London, through a bank in London as well. So all of the details are up at 21st Century Wire, hunting for Hunter. And again, we, we had a great Ukrainian investigative journalist that we worked with uh, in publishing that. And it didn't get a lot of publicity, but we believe that it holds a lot of the answers uh, to the real scandal, the scandal behind the scandal. Okay, well, look, thank you very much for the, that, Patrick. We're absolutely out of time. Uh, so we'll leave it there, unless you want to just quickly run, run through one more yeah, thing. One last story. This okay. is really important here in terms of the U.S. Um, so the Democrats, lockdown is an election strategy. Here is Governor Whitmer. They're calling it the decision, Mike, not the election, the decision 2020. And uh, here she is, Governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. She's been very pro-lockdown. She's a hardcore Covite, okay. Michigan State Governor Whitmer tried to delay a court's ruling which was going to into effect uh, to delay it a further 21 days until after the general election on November 3rd, but the court rejected her attempts to delay on Monday. Basically, the court ruled against her lockdown, mm -hmm. and she tried to get them to wait 21 days. So she wants she wanted to keep the state under lockdown until after. Now, how would that affect the vote? Um, it would it increases the pain and suffering. This is like sanctions, basically, on your own people. Maximum pressure campaign by the government. So she's literally caught trying to basically... Uh, game the election? Game, well, Michigan's a key battleground state, and the, the election could be decided in Michigan. So she, her and the Democrat strategy is increase the pain and suffering, because uh, they don't want anyone to feel good or Trump being able to say, hey, we're gonna lift lockdowns. Mm -hmm. Or is, don't you think things are already doing better in two or three or four weeks mm -hmm. uh, because your state's not locked down? So no positive. Uh, vibes and just to show you this extends to the national level here. She is speaker of the house Nancy Pelosi fumbling with her mask again uh, And so what did she do Well, Democratic Party strategy of maximum pressure on the American people being conducted at a national level? After she basically calls to stop Donald Trump's 1.8 trillion dollar coronavirus relief bill So she won't let it pass so she so he has put forward a 1.8 trillion dollar relief bill to give people 
financial support as yeah. a result of the, to deal with the lock the effects of lockdown. People, states, businesses, and and she is preventing that from going through. This this should not be a political issue. This is about people's lives and their ability to survive in a pretty unpleasant situation. And she's turning that into an election issue. That that's pretty despicable. And I think she might have gone too far on this. Even CNN. Wolf Blitzer was pushing back on her. It's a classic clip. It's the first time I've ever seen CNN doing real journalism domestically in the United States. There, he was challenging her, and she got very upset, and she lashed back at him, and attacked CNN's, you know, anchor Wolf Blitzer, who's, who's pro-Democrat to the core. Mm. But th this is how desperate the Democrats are. They want to keep lockdown as an election strategy. They want the pain and suffering. Uh, they want the misery to extend um, just enough. So they don't want to give Trump any opportunity to take credit or to see any improvement in the numbers, the economic numbers or anything like this. So I, it's a very cynical uh, and a very dangerous strategy, and it could backfire badly on the Democrats, um, on Nancy Pelosi specifically, and Gretchen Whitmer as, as two examples. Well, I think uh, it's about time Nancy Pelosi retired, isn't it? Yeah, about 10, 20 years ago yeah, maybe would yeah. have been good, but you know. Okay, well, look, we, we do have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Patrick, for joining me today. Thank you for joining us today. We will be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Uh, hope you have a good weekend in the meantime, and we'll see you then. Okay, bye-bye.